0: You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. I think what, what we're seeing now is that as companies are getting better, the public's expectations are changing.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CyberWire's Hacking Humans podcast, where each week we look behind the social engineering scams, the phishing schemes, and the criminal exploits that are making headlines and taking a heavy toll on organizations around the world. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire, and joining me is Joe Kerrigan from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Hello, Joe. Hi, Dave. we got some good stories to share this week, and later in the show, my conversation with Bill Coletti. He's a crisis communications and reputation management expert at a company called Kith, And he's author of the book, Critical Moments, A New Mindset for Reputation Management. All right, Joe, let's uh, kick things off with some stories uh, this week. I'm going to start things uh, for us. This comes from a a company called Egress. It's built around their 2020 outbound email data breach report. Now, Egress is a company that specializes in protecting your outbound email. So, they have an interest in this report. With that in mind, they're in the business of selling you this sort of protection. But um, they hired a research company that is not them to Mm. uh, do a a survey. They interviewed uh, 538 senior managers responsible for IT security in the UK and the US across several vertical sectors, including financial services, healthcare, banking, and legal. And so really what this report talks about is the security risks of your outbound email. Mm -hmm. And I I don't know, I I, I guess I don't really think about this that much, Uh, the stuff that you could inadvertently send out or get tricked into sending out. The other thing that fascinated me about this was that notion of when you're putting a bunch of people's names on an an email and your email client accidentally autofills someone else's name, Yes. So it could be like, you know, I could be wanting to send, you know, Joe, my CPA, all of my financials, and it accidentally gets autofilled to Joe Kerrigan. Right. And all my financials go to you. And and, Dave, why'd you send me your financials? You You know, know it's interesting, Dave. (laughs) It's
2: funny that you mentioned this because yesterday I noticed something in my Outlook autofill. You remember a couple of months ago, I said I got tricked by a fisher who was impersonating my boss, Dr. DeBurra. Yeah. And I was sending my boss an email and I started typing his name. And in the list of possible names, possible email addresses was that phishing email address. And I'm like, I got to take that out of there.
1: Yeah, that's <laughs> interesting. That's been, so it, yeah, it grabbed it automatically and put it in there.
2: Yeah, it, it presented as an option. It was a, a far down the list option, but it was yeah. still an option. So I've got to remove huh. that.
1: So uh, there's a bunch of numbers here, and I don't want to get bogged down in in numbers and stats and things. I mean, they talk about 93% of organizations who responded had experienced data breaches via outbound email in the past Mm -hmm. 12 months. Yep, They reported an average of 180 incidents per year uh, where sensitive data was put at risk. Um, The most common breach types were replying to spear phishing emails at 80%. Emails sent to the wrong recipients... 80% 80% and incorrect file attachments. That's interesting too. You, you think you're sending one file, but you accidentally send something else. Right, that's a common human error. Right, and that I think is one of the things that this report points to is that very much of this is human error and they talk about people being tired and stressed out. And I don't know about you, but the past nine months have been a cloud of being tired and stressed out, I think for a lot of us as we've yes. been living in, in these in the you know the pandemic uh, situation. That's an extra mental burden on all of us. It is, absolutely. And so it's easy to make these mistakes. A couple of other interesting things here caught my eye. They talked about how were the security team, how are the IT leaders likely to find out about the data breach. And 20% said they'd be alerted by the email recipient. So I send you something accidentally and you reply and say, uh, this is, I don't think you meant for this to go to right. me. Yeah. Uh, <laughs>
2: 20, so 20% of these end in somebody being honest and going, oops, I'll destroy all these copies for you.
1: Right, right. And lucky for you that this landed on the desk of someone who's honest. Right, right? exactly. 18% felt another employee would report it, and 24% said the employee who sent the email would disclose their error. So think about that. Right. The the flip side of that is three-quarters – don't right, think yeah. that person is exactly three quarters the of people are being like Ugh, we'll just hope nobody ever oh, oh notices. <laughs> yeah, I'm just going to whistle <laughs> past this graveyard. And so, it, it, what it gets down to is that there are tools available, and this company Egress happens to be one of the companies, I suppose, that sells those sorts of tools. But that you can have these tools that are looking over your shoulder, mm-hmm. that are looking for patterns. You know, so it, it's using artificial intelligence and machine learning to say, okay. You know, once a month, Dave usually sends the financials out to his CPA. I see Dave is sending out the financials, but uh, why would he be sending them to Joe Kerrigan? That doesn't make any sense. Right. So we could flag that and stop it and put up an extra alert, kind of, you know, check protect you against yourself, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is a
2: data loss prevention tool. There are tons of data loss prevention tools out there, and this one obviously targets email. There are probably other solutions out there like this as well. One of the big things is the spear phishing attack on HR. I've heard Mm. stories about this before where somebody impersonates from an external email address, impersonates the president of the company and says, I need all of our records for all of our employees and I need you to send them to me right now. Can you do that? And the HR person goes, sure, here you go. Here are the records. And what they've just done is committed a data breach.
1: Yeah. And we've seen, I mean, I want to say probably, I don't know, once or twice a month, we see a story over on the CyberWire where someone has, there's been a massive data breach. And it was just because an employee accidentally sent something to the wrong email address or CC'd everybody. Right. <laughs> yeah. Like what are, That's another what are those, of...
2: What are those blunders that
1: we've all done?
2: Right. Somebody click reply all with an
1: attachment. Right. The last thing I want to touch on here is the impact of the breaches with what happened to the employees. If someone did, you know, accidentally did something like this, they said that employees received a formal warning in 46% of the incidents, were fired in 27% of the incidents, and legal action was brought against them in 28% of the incidents. Wow. Legal action being brought against the employees? That's what it says. Hmm.
2: I don't know. I don't know how I feel about that. If, yeah, uh, I don't know. First off, I'm not sure that's going to stand up. One of the things about operating a business is that you are, as the business owner, and perhaps as a business organization, you are assuming the risk of your employees' behavior. I don't know that bringing legal action against an employee or a or former employee in this case, probably, I don't know that you're going to get anywhere with that. I, I, I don't know. I, actually, I'm not a lawyer, so what do I know? Maybe <laughs> this is a
1: good question for Ben. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. Maybe I guess one of the- this on Caveat. Yeah, one of the other take homes here, you know, again, back to that thing about being tired and and uh, stressed out, is just you know check in with your employees or check in right. with your colleagues, your coworkers. Just how you doing? How you feeling? Because it seems to me like you know giving your employees the extra time to do the things they need to do, you know, to being easy on them, not not you know really riding them hard right now, is going to pay dividends because you're going to be much less likely to have these sort of costly mistakes happen that can happen from people being tired and stressed out. Yeah, I think distraction is a big factor in a lot of these mistakes and a lot of these errors. Yeah, absolutely. You've got to encourage
2: your uh, employees to, to slow down, take their time, and focus on what they're doing. I've been making the point now for, in, in some of the talks I've been delivering, don't demand multitasking when employers are looking for multitasking, they're really, they really don't want someone who can multitask. They want someone who can task switch, you know, switch between tasks and and manage their time appropriately. And you really want your employees working on one thing at a time and concentrating on that. You don't want them worrying about other things and having those other thought processes interfere with the actual work that they're doing.
1: Right. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, that's my story this week. Uh, We'll have a link to uh, that report in the show notes. Uh, Joe, what do you have for us? Dave, my story this week is about a fake company
2: called E-Capital Loans. Hmm. And this story came to my attention via Angie Barnett, who is with the Better Business Bureau of Greater Maryland. And the BBB has an article on their website about this company, and we'll put a link in the show notes. The National Better Business Bureau received several hundred complaints from 11 states about this company, E-Capital Loans. And eCapital Loans had an online loan application that was a little bit too personal, right? It asked way too many, (laughs) way too many questions. And they would ask for information like uh, driver's license numbers and social security numbers. And once you applied for a loan, they would call you and they'd say, hey, you've been approved for a a loan that is – you know, three thousand dollars. But in order for us to give you the loan, we need your banking information. You know, your routing number, account number, your banking username, your banking password, and the security questions for your bank account for your logon. And wow. they claimed that this was necessary to process the loan. Mm-hmm. The company used a phony address in Texas and was calling from a fake number based out of Texas. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they were they were actually also displaying one of the things that angered the Better Business Bureau about this was they were displaying fake BBB trademarks on you know like BBB approved right we're good right. we're all <laughs>
1: right right oh we're dear all good
2: here what's interesting is there's another site out there that lets users log complaints but uh, I'm not going to list that site because I'm not sure what that site is all about, but they definitely do let users log complaints. There was a common theme here that when the scammers called, they already had all the victims details, right? So it Mm. looks to me like these guys set up a web page on the internet, and then you would enter your information as thinking you were applying for a loan. And then once they had that information, they would call you and try to scam you into giving them access to your bank account. They would try to say, okay, in order for us to process your loan, we need you to take the money we just deposited and go out and buy a gift card. Oh, really? Yeah. Or send us that money back with your cash app. Huh. So there are a number of people out there who have lost thousands of dollars to these guys. Not only have they lost thousands of dollars, but another side effect is, in in three or four of these complaints I was reading, the banks noticed that this was fraudulent activity and they shut the accounts down, which means now these people don't have bank accounts, right? And they have to wait for the the process of opening a new account. And one of the complaints after this person had been scammed out of $1,800, the bank was asking the person, so when do you think you can get the money back to us? <laughs> right? <laughs> oh, wow. The Better Business Bureau and I have some really good recommendations here. Number one, when you're applying for a personal loan, understand what that application process looks like. A lot of times they really don't need your entire social security number They just need the last four in your birth date. That's sufficient for a legitimate organization to find your record in in their database because they have Hmm. the records in what's called an in-file credit report system that doesn't actually hit your credit report until they actually do a hard hit. But another aspect is they almost never ask for your driver's license. They don't need that. That's something you need when you're opening a bank account. And there are reasons for that that have to do with like the Patriot Act and anti-money laundering laws as well. Right. Uh, No legitimate company is ever going to ask you to repay a loan or pay a service fee via cash app or via gift cards. That's just, right, that should right. be a red flag for everybody. If this company right, says right. we need this paid back in gift cards, hang up. <laughs> You're done. <laughs> we're, we're over right. here. The The other side of this is, is not only are they trying to scam people, but they've collected this information on you. Now they can do all kinds of things, especially once they have all the information like your driver's license number. Now they can go out and commit I- identity theft as well. And yeah. that's another big concern. The Better Business Bureau and this other website had a website for e-capital loans, and that website has now been shut down. There are no files on it. The server's still up, but the site is gone. That doesn't mean this risk is gone, though. These guys are going to still be out there, and they're still going to be trying to operate. And if this scam this scam was successful, so guess what's going to happen? There's going to be more of these scams
1: like Yeah, this. I mean, still, oh, this is going to be an a ongoing whack-a-mole kind of thing unless exactly. somebody – tracks them down and uh, throws some uh, bracelets on their wrists, right? Right, which is
2: probably (laughs) not going to happen because these guys are probably not operating within the United States, right? So we're probably
1: not going to get them. Yeah, I can imagine somebody having that emotional feeling of having that money dangling in front of you by saying, you've been approved, congratulations, good news. Right. You know, you're going to get that money that you need for whatever you need it for. And all you need to do to uh, have it is give us just answer a few more questions. And then here it is. Absolutely. That's a
2: tough thing to resist. It's like that sunk cost fallacy. You keep putting effort into things despite the fact you're not going to get it. You start to, maybe you would start to think this is a scam, but because you're, uh, maybe you're desperate, you need this money to make some bills or something. I'm not a big fan yeah. of personal loans. I'm also not a big fan of like payday loans or car title loans. I think those are just usurious and abusive. Sometimes people really need money to make ends meet.
1: Yeah, and, and these scammers make it harder for the folks who are doing legitimate businesses, you know, yeah, who are-, absolutely. Who are out there trying to do, in good faith, try to help people when they need a little help. Right, absolutely. yeah. All right, it's a good story. Uh, We will have a link in the show notes, of course. Joe, it is time to move on to our catch of the day.
2: Dave, our catch of the day comes from a listener named Max. He says, I know we like to make fun of scammers, but this one looks pretty decent. I recently got a work phone, and whoever had my number before me was not careful about who had their number. I've hmm. been getting texts from email addresses about 100 an hour gigs, he says. Oh, man. <laughs> Might ask for a new work phone if that were the case, right? That is, oh, that's awful. That's <laughs> awful. Yeah. But he got this one. It's a standard old practice, but uh, why don't you read it and we'll let our listeners understand as they
1: go along. All right. It goes like this. Hello. I'm a professional coder and I hacked your device's OS when you visited adult website. I've been watching your activity for a couple of months. If you don't understand what I'm talking about, I can explain. My Trojan malware lets me get access to my victim system. It's a multi-platform software with HVNC that can be installed on phones, PC, and even TV OS. It doesn't have any AVs detects because it is encrypted and can't be detected because I update its signatures every four hours. I can turn on your camera, save your logs, and do everything that I want, and you won't notice anything. Now I have all your contacts, SM data, and all logs from chats for the latest two months, but it is not very useful without something that can spoil your reputation. I can destroy your life by sending this stuff to everybody you know. If you want me to delete this stuff and avoid any problems, you have to send $1,000 to my bitcoin address. If you don't know how to buy Bitcoins, use Google. There are a lot of manuals about using, spending, and buying this cryptocurrency. You have 50 hours from now to complete the payment. I have a notification that you are reading this message. Time has gone. Don't try to respond because this email address is generated. Don't try to complain because this and my Bitcoin address can't be tracked down. If I notice that you shared this message, everybody will receive your data. Bye!
2: (laughs) So, uh... Typical sex scam, right? <laughs> yeah, we've yeah. seen these a lot, but this is yeah. pretty good. I like that he says it's a really powerful piece of malware that can run on anything, including a TV OS. Yeah, <laughs> and antivirus can't detect it because it's encrypted, and he updates its signatures every four hours. Yeah,
1: uh, now this is a guess. A capable actor here, right? Joe. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this, is not, <laughs> this is not somebody to be trifled with for sure. Yes, I want to. <laughs> I want to enter this
2: Bitcoin address into a tracker and see if anybody has sent any money to this guy.
1: All right, well, that is our catch of the day. We want to thank our listener, Max, for sending that along to us. If you have a catch of the day, send it to us. It's hackinghumans at thecyberwire.com. Joe, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Bill Coletti. He is a crisis communications and reputation management expert at a company called Kith, and he's also author of the book, Critical Moments, A New Mindset for Reputation Management. Really interesting stuff here. Here's my conversation with Bill Coletti.
0: I think when we look at the early days of Target and Home Depot, which were kind of two of the largest, 2014 or so, I believe, kind of those larger data breaches, then ransomware, which is obviously a close cousin of that. So I think companies are getting better. I think what, what we're seeing now is that as companies are getting better, the public's expectations are changing. I think the public has some, to a certain extent, their expectations have raised. They want to know more. They want to know exactly what's been lost, how's it been lost, where's it been lost. And then they've also just become a little bit numb to it also. So it really makes a a, a communications challenge. So I think the state of industry, when it comes to data breach or hack in general, is good, not great, but the goal line is moving because the public's expectations are changing.
1: Well, let's walk through it together. I mean, an organization experiences something like this. I mean, let's use ransomware as an example. And a company gets hit by ransomware, they have to shut down and they have to inform their customers. What's your advice? How does an organization best go about that?
0: So I think that the key differentiator in any crisis, whether it's a hurricane that it's changing the physical plant or an explosion or ransomware. The the basic fundamentals are the same. I think that the differentiator between good and great is speed. And the way you get fast is really being clear on your mission and values and aligning that with a chain of command. So let's take take ransomware. Speed is, is important, is that we need to fill the vacuum. If we shut down our operations and our, our app doesn't work or our store doesn't open or our factory doesn't produce for whatever the case, or our hospital doesn't treat people, that information is going to make it into the marketplace somehow, either via the media, traditional media or social media. So our ability to fill the vacuum with a message is really, really important and we need to do it quickly. The way we do it quickly is by having thought in advance, who are we and what do we stand for? If we're a really private, we don't talk about very much. That's our values. That's who we are. Next is this notion of chain of command, inside counsel, outside counsel. Is your CTO involved? Who's involved in this decision-making? Because as I work with companies and, and watch them, it's Who are we and what do we stand for? Who do we really care about? Our shareholders, our customers, our employees. Too many cooks in the kitchen, chain of command. That impacts speed. So in your scenario is is that we have this ransomware. We're no longer to perform, whatever the case may be, in an app or a hospital or a school, et cetera, is that we need to say something. We don't have to have all the answers in moment one. So the initial statement really needs to be we are aware and we are working on this as hard as we can. And that's okay. Mm. You don't have to be perfect and don't need to wait for a solution because speed matters because someone else is going to answer for you if you don't answer yourself. Is it better
1: in that initial communication to be vague than to be wrong?
0: It's better to be honest that we don't know and that and, mm. and that, that I don't know is okay. Here's what we know. We know that that you know we had a, a, a this type of incident. Here's where we stand right now. And we are working with authorities to get to the bottom and we'll report, we will share again an update in three hours or 30 minutes, whatever the situation dictates, we'll share an additional update in three hours. So I, so I think it to your your paradigm of being vague versus wrong, I would love for us never to be wrong, but if we just (laughs) share what we know and when we're going to update people again, it just demonstrates that we're on top of it and That we're being transparent and authentic, and I do believe that people, there is a semblance of grace that the public is going to give us if we if we communicate like that.
1: What about having a playbook in place? You know, being able to practice this sort of thing so that if it comes to pass, that you're not getting sort of blindsided by it.
0: Yeah, critically important. So I make a distinction: practice and a playbook. I think playbooks are good, but just in the nature of this conversation, you know, Dave, you've you've framed it as ransomware you could have picked a half a dozen if not a dozen other types of scenarios okay that that may be thornier or less thorny so so that's the case in point a playbook is good that that outlines some broad parameters but writing a crisis communications plan for every perceivable permutation of what could go wrong that's unnecessary that's a mistake but a broad playbook that outlines This is who we care about, mission and values. Here's who needs to be in the room, chain of command, and some some basic talking points, just like we talked about. That's great. More importantly, even if you can't do a playbook, more importantly is practice. And, And it can be simple as at a weekly or a monthly staff meeting, regardless of what kind of company you are. And we're talking about the data world right now. Pull out the newspaper, and Dave, if you're the CEO, you pull out the newspaper and say, if this had happened to us, how would we respond? And make it, ten, make it a 10-minute conversation. That type of practicing and that type of muscle memory is really, really valuable for organizations, whether we're talking about data security and data protection, or we're talking about even physical security or force majeure natural disasters. Just say, what if this had happened? What would we do? So practice is critical.
1: What about the emotional component of this? I mean, I imagine that for a lot of folks in an organization, this this is a really bad day that they're in the midst of. So I suspect that affects their ability to make their way through a step-by-step sort of playback or or to, to function, you know, in a way that they hoped or predicted that they would. How do you prepare people for that element of it?
0: Yeah, boy, fabulous, fabulous question. Take a CEO of this hypothetical company that we're talking about of a ransomware Not only are they trying to make decisions in the best interest of their customers, but potentially they're watching their personal reputation and and their personal career potentially crumbling in front of them from no fault of their own. Mm. And so absolutely, because these are human beings making human decisions. And so that EQ and IQ of how leaders show up during a crisis is as much about what I do as it is about small dogs versus puppies In the press release, you know, how we articulate wordsmithing, it's really about how do you coach the leader to to get through this and and a real EQ understanding of the impact that this crisis is having on individuals. So and then specifically, let's talk about a a chief information officer or chief technology officer. Everybody's looking at them and saying, how the hell did you let this happen? And that's Mm. a pretty personal affront. As you can imagine, you know, you're you a pro in this space. This is the one area, if I'm the CEO, this is the one area of my business that I got a full-time team doing nothing but protecting me, and you're telling me we screwed it? How does that happen? So that, that yeah. gets very personal very quickly.
1: And so what, what's the solution there? Do you have people assigned to the communications who aren't you know, the, the people who
0: are going to be in the heat of battle? It takes a team. It goes back to chain of command. It takes this collaborative team because very few communicators have the level of sophistication to be able to explain the intricacies of what is or isn't happening. And so you need the subject matter experts to, and, and you need then the communicators to sort of simplify and storytell around those realities. The first and foremost thing when I've seen great leaders do it and what I try to do with the organizations that I work with is let's just acknowledge the elephant in the room. Guys, this sucks. This is a horrible Mm. situation, okay? We'll deal with the repercussions of it on us personally later, but we need to make sure that we get whatever the problem is we're solving, get back to business or find our customers' data or protect our customers, et cetera, et cetera, whatever we need to do, but address the challenge. And and for when I've been so impressed when great leaders will say, you guys, you you need to park your ego at the door. This isn't about any individual. We'll we'll have plenty of time to lay blame. Now's the time to get to a solution. So it's, it's, it's very much a leadership messaging about how a leader shows up in the crisis.
1: What about things like rumors or, or disinformation? You know, I, I could imagine, uh, you know, folks from within an organization uh, to talking to their friends that gets out or, or even maybe a, a competitor out there who's trying to, to sow some seeds of doubt
0: in the context of a ransomware situation or just uh, yeah, in general you know, in, in, a, in a crisis
1: situation you know, you could imagine there'd be people out there who might want to capitalize off of that.
0: Yeah. You know, it's a, it's a reality. I think the, the big three that we focus on are communities, customers, and critics and community represents your employees, your stakeholders, you know, people that matter to you intimately customers, people who write your checks and critics is kind of people that aren't necessarily invested in your success, which is where I'd put competitors in that space is that all three of them have a stake in the outcome of this situation. And so I think it's really important to, in, in these situations that we've been involved in, is be really transparent, fix the problem, move forward and get back to normal as quickly as you can and try to really sort of distinguish smoke from fire. I think a lot of this, you could really get distracted by this person said that or this person said the other thing. That, that's an easy distraction. I really think organizations should focus on fix the problem, and get back to business, get back to normal, whatever that is, as quickly as possible. If you're chasing ghosts, you're chasing rumors, I don't think that's a very a good best practice. If they become significant, one of the things we recommend is stand up two separate teams, stand up a team to manage the challenge in front of us, and then someone to kind of run around as firefighters, you know, kind of tamping these things out as necessary but i, I my, my primary advice is focus on the business, getting back to business, getting back to normal as quick as you can
1: and once uh, an organization is on the other side of an event like this, what sort of things should they be doing in, in terms of communicating with their their stakeholders after the fact
0: yeah so it's that's where this this huge distinction comes in a, about reputation you know what is the what is the the long tail reputational impact. And and you know this, well, as anybody, there's a lot of really, really good studies out there. You know, what have CIOs and what if, what CEO CEOs really worried about? They're, they're really worried about data protection and PII and things like that. They're worried about it from a reputation standpoint and that the, the, the significant harm that reputation can handle. So I think it is what you do after the fact is directly related to what you do during the fact. And so the way you manage the event, clear messaging, articulation of the facts, it's okay not to have every answer, but get to the bottom as quickly as you can, and then to continue to act that way and don't go silent, but acknowledge the challenge, acknowledge the situation for the long, over the long term. Those are some of the best practices. And then also, what did we learn? How, we, how This is how we're going to improve. We, we identified that there was a, a gap or a vulnerability or whatever the case may be. But here's what we're doing to, to learn and improve. Some people want to just kind of, well, let's just kick the third quarter under the rug and hope that just never happens again. I think that, <laughs> that there's a lot of people that can value and, and it builds your reputation with the ability to be honest and truthful and what we believe in ABC, always be communicating, telling your story even on the darkest day, the same way you tell it when the when the sun is shining.
1: You know, based on on your experience, do you have any advice in terms of you know, no matter what you do, don't don't do this.
0: You know, there's a couple of them that don't do this. Don't lie if you don't know the facts. You don't know the facts. Yeah, try to avoid speculation. You know, I think we've seen, gosh, we've seen so many people in a small world of saying you know, well, my hit Twitter account was hacked and that's why I said what I said and, and, and silly things like that, which is so ridiculously easy to prove to be false. I mean, so, so mm. don't do silly things like that. I think don't blame somebody else if it was your organization's fault. And, and so mm. throwing a third-party vendor under the bus or the, the subcontractor or something like that, if it legitimately was their fault, that's fine. But seeking out a scapegoat rarely works. People just want to know that we're getting to solution. Get, let me know what the solution is. Let me know what we're doing to fix it. Let me know that you've got my data or my whatever protected. So I think that's really more important. So don't don't automatically look for a scapegoat. If you mess up, fix it and try to move on as quickly as possible. And usually owning it is the best way to do it.
1: What are your recommendations for folks to get started on this, to, to head down this path of, of preparation?
0: Well, I think the simplest one, a little bit that we chatted about is is at a staff meeting periodically say, if what what would happen if this had happened to us? I mean, that's yeah. the simplest thing that someone can do. And you can do it every Monday morning or quarterly or whenever you have a staff meeting. I think after that, it's really putting a serious-minded leader behind this notion of our reputation. Okay, I'll take it for granted that someone in the technology office or the CIO office or whatever the case may be, that they're really thinking about this stuff at a practical, technical level and that they're installing the right patches and they're doing all the right things. Again, things you're you're the expert at, not me. They're doing all of those things. But I think from a reputational standpoint that you're putting a serious-minded leader that is looking at the consequences of various outcomes – And the implications that that has on our reputation. And what are we not only going to do about it after the fact, but how are we going to build a deeper reservoir of goodwill? How can we issue a annual report? How can we speak at the right conferences? How can we find third-party experts like you that when there is something negative that you can say, well, hey, that's not the company I know because that CIO I know was really on tip of the spear on these mm. issues. So those are just a handful of ideas. But I'd be a really serious leader to think not only about the technology part, that's the CIO, CTO, but to really someone in the reputation space to think same in a similar sort of series. How do we mitigate, get ready, and then how do we explain when and if these situations happen? All right, Joe, what do you think? Dave,
2: that was an interesting interview. We haven't had a lot of interviews like this on here. This is yeah. an- an important topic to talk about reputation management is very important and your reputation is going to be damaged in a lot of situations it's interesting what he said here about customer expectations they've been raised while at the same time customer numbness has increased as well so in other words mm. customers almost expecting that their data is going to be breached but they're also expecting something else some, some better information when that happens right
1: mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
2: so i find that interesting Uh, Speed is key. Nothing is worse than getting no feedback in a lot of situations. We as people want to be informed about things that impact us, right? Have you ever worked for a company where you think something's up, but nobody will tell you anything? (laughs)
1: <laughs> you know? it's a terrible feeling it is a terrible <laughs> feeling
2: even if you're in a personal relationship like remember back in high school when you'd be dating a girl and then all of a sudden she'd you know stop talking now they just call it ghosting right but um <laughs> right. not getting any information is a terrible terrible feeling i think it's just part of the human condition that we we hate that right yeah yeah bill is 100 right about this if you don't fill that vacuum somebody will <laughs> mm-hmm. People are going to start uh, speculating wildly and start guessing. Why aren't they talking? Why aren't they saying anything? And, and you've got to get out in front of that as a company. Your question about being vague versus being wrong, I think it's better to be wrong. When you're in the kind of situation where you have an incident and you have to your, address your public or a group of people, set that expectation right away. Say, you know, we're very early on in this. This is what we think happened. We may be wrong about what happened, but this is what we know right now or what we think right now. Later on the interview, he says, when he's talking about the don'ts, he says, don't speculate. So try to keep it as minimal as possible when you're talking about these things. Don't speculate. Practice is key for preparation. I say this about other things like when you have backups, you have to try to restore those backups and test it. That's practice, right? But Mm -hmm. Bill's suggestion here is a great idea. I love this idea. If you're in a meeting as an executive team, just grab the newspaper and find out the latest cyber event or look up one that has occurred this week. There's going to be one that happened this week, right? It's always happening. (laughs) And then ask your team, what would we do if this was us? That is a great idea. That's a great way to start thinking about this and start exercising your mind, building that that mental muscle memory, if you will, to be prepared for this. There's a great discussion also on the emotional aspects of, of these attacks. When there's a lot of personal investment in these situations and the idea to solve the problem first and then worry about assigning blame later i think that's very a very good idea and a leader would have to take the position look we're not going to be pointing fingers all we're going to be doing is getting back up and running okay Mm -hmm. we're going to worry about everything else later but right now let's solve the problem and then what you what you do after the event is directly related to what you do during the event i like when he said that as well that's pretty cool his list of don'ts for an event, don't lie, don't speculate, don't find a scapegoat. I would add, don't try to cover it up. If you're suffering a security incident, be as transparent as, as you plan to be. When he starts off the interview, he says your culture is going to define what level of transparency you're going to have. So mm-hmm. meet that expectation. Do not try to cover up uh, like a, particularly a data breach. That only makes people hate you twice.
1: Right, right. No, and I think it's a good message for taking a look at your culture and saying, what sort of norms have we established here and are they in our best interest or not?
2: Right. Yeah, absolutely. It may be a time to evaluate your culture and whether or not it's time
1: for it to change. Right. Well, our thanks to Bill Coletti. Uh, Again, uh, he's from a company called Kith uh, and his book is titled Critical Moments, A New Mindset for Reputation Management. Uh, really appreciate him taking the time for us. I thought that was just a fascinating conversation.